Trying to make it real compared to what... This week on the Janice Adams Show, a special COVID-19 hashtag staying home edition. You know, this book is, of course, about black women, black girls, but this book is for everybody. And I've been very heartened by the positive and, and enthusiastic response I've gotten to it from boys in particular and African-American boys and African boys, by the way, in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, they love this book and respond to it. A family member, he, he told his male cousin, unprompted by me, said she's written a book and it's amazing. You know, <laughs> that's the best review I could get, you know? Well, you have written a book. A black woman did that and it is amazing, Malika Darrow. First, the news. Today on the show, a longtime editor, one of publishing select few African-American editors. She's since turned agent and author, and she has a new book out, A Woman Did That, 42 Boundary-Breaking, Bar-Raising, World-Changing Women. Malika Adero, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you, Janice. I'm thrilled to be here. Malayika, the, the book, I, I, when I got it, um, and this doesn't often happen, I am, you know, always happy to receive a book, but just looking at it, I don't necessarily break into a smile. This book made me break into a smile. It is just a joyous representation of black woman. Tell us about the, the illustrator. Yes, yes, uh, Shante Timothy, uh, London-based, uh, a black female. Um, she's wonderful. And, um, the, you know, in, in children's book publishing in particular, publishers, uh, um, uh, prefer to, to choose the, the artist. Mm-hmm. If you're lucky, you're working with uh, a publisher who's collaborative with you and wants your input. And that was the case with me. So they uh, came up with a short list of uh, illustrators. Um, uh, every one in that short list was uh, black and female uh, because, you know, my publisher understands the importance of that and the importance of um, cultural diversity and specificity. Um, I would have been uh, happy, frankly, with any one of them, but Shantae's work has an edginess and an energy um, that that jives with, frankly, my personality and my, mm-hmm. my sensibility and what I want to bring to children. You know, there are other beautiful books with, with more classic uh, illustration styles, but I like the, the youthful energy and the exuberance, and it made me smile, too. Uh, being a, a book nerd, a, a lifelong publishing person, you know, it makes me extra picky about uh, production quality mm-hmm. and um, and color and design and all that. Um, so I was very lucky to, to have the publisher, uh, to have the publisher that I do who understands that. Yes. And it kind of evokes the spirit of quilts. Some of the, the improvisational quilts that you see historically that black women have done. Yes, and I yes. love that about it. Um, this is a wonderful book, a wonderful time to put it out. But I think because it's been published at this point in the nation's history, where we thought we were okay and moving forward on our knowledge of women's history, and we are seeing that getting young girls, older women, getting us all involved in our history and is very, very important in new ways. So tell us about how this project comes to you. I'm fortunate to have long-time good relationships with many of my colleagues in publishing. And uh, one such um, colleague, a former co-worker, um, Julie Merberg, who is the founder and the publisher of Downtown Bookworks, she approached me a uh, year before last with the idea, she said, of doing a book called A Black Woman Did That. 
<laughs> and um, she said, do you think you could develop a project around that? And I'm like, absolutely. So I wrote a proposal and it was acceptable to her. She was familiar with my work um, as far back as the 1980s when we worked together at Simon and Schuster. So, you know, I was fortunate that I didn't have to shop around to find a publisher for this. The publisher had come to me. Mm-hmm. So, You've done this work, and I do really want to come back to your history and publishing. But for now, sticking with the book, she comes to you with this concept. You do a book proposal. How mm-hmm. do you, the vast history, and I definitely am aware of how vast it is, having written my own book of African-American women's history, but you take this vast history and you figure out 42 Women, how'd you do that? You know, I began with my own um, personal list of favorites. You know, honestly, the thing is, this isn't a new idea. Uh, as you said, you you you've written in this category about African American history, women, black women in um, in history. So I started with my favorites, the people that I um, insist that the young people in my life, my children, know about. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then I considered the scope and the diversity and um, of fields there, because I want uh, young people, particularly, to know um, the range of options that they have career-wise and in terms of life paths. So my list was heavy weighted on the side of um, artists. Uh, um, writers and, and dancers and, and painters and, and that sort of thing, but wasn't as strong uh, in terms of those women who made important contributions in the sciences and in business. I'm also passionate about politics, so I could list those. So it, it took searching around. I am um, uh, a natural researcher. I always had my antenna up for um, unsung stories of African Americans in particular, of, of women. So I just, you know, uh, um, put that antenna up higher and began to read and, uh, um, and just, you know, do the fundamental research that, that, um, all nonfiction writers must do to come up with a well-rounded list. Now the number 42 really has mm-hmm. to do with how much I could realistically do in a given period of time. It was simply that, you know, it could have been 400 women, but it would have taken me 10 times as long to do the book. The book would be 10 times the size, you know, uh, that wasn't um, feasible. So we sort of said, settled between the publisher and I, okay, 40. And then the two comes in because I couldn't do Debbie Allen without Felicia Rashad. (laughs) I couldn't do uh, Serena Williams without Venus, you see. And each one had to have their own page, not just be sisters together on a page. Well, they don't have their own page, actually. They are together. And I did have to uh, put emphasis on one and not the other, but they're both there. I also drop many other names, as many other names as I can, because these Women actually, of course, live in the world in relationship to each other. Uh, so in the introductions and in the sidebars, uh, while I mention, while I write about, I focus on Angela Davis, um, I uh, also talk about her sister, Fanya, her niece, Issa, who's an actress, you see. Mm-hmm. So I piled in as much as I could, actually. Yes. Well, you know, I did say, yes, I'd written a a book about that, but I didn't say it to be um, uh, because of that book, but because of the fact that there will never be enough books and there will never be, uh, you know, on this subject and there will never be um, a, a point where we could possibly cover it all. And that, to me, is almost the revolutionary concept, given where we've come from, from even into the 80s and 90s with people saying that black people have no history and culture, or, you know, and the schools being so determined not to have it in there, as opposed to determined to having it in there. Yeah, no, 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 I absolutely agree with you on that. Um, one of the ways um, 
that I trimmed the, the list down that was a little painful, actually, <laughs> yes. was I kept the subjects to African-American women. Uh-huh. So it doesn't have the international scope that I would ideally like to have with Ellen Sirleaf um, Johnson, uh, the, the president of Liberia. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Winnie Mandela. I mean, just, you know, a host of women from um, all over the planet mm-hmm. who've made uh, important contributions and, and been um, the leadership uh, in, in the development of rural culture and society. As we speak, there is a controversy that is going on right now on the Internet with an ad that was done by Target for a company called The Hunting Pot, um, which is a, a company owned by an African-American woman, personal care products for women. And in Target doing this commercial, it they they honored her, but what they were really doing was honoring Black History Month into Women's History Month. And she makes a statement for those people who who haven't, heard it or, or seen it, she makes a statement that um, she hopes that the work she's doing will open opportunities so that the next, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but so that a little girl to come will see see herself in this and and essentially see her own success to come. And uh, haters came from every quarter. And unfortunately, I have to say, as far as we know, they were basically white haters who came from this, calling B. Dixon racist for not saying all little girls. So here you are writing a, a book, and thank goodness it seems to the the trolling of her company seems to have backfired on the people who did it. But here you are writing a book about African-American women for that I'm sure that every little girl should read. But many people will say that it is for African-American girls, and that's fine because African-American girls do need books that will inspire them against, you know, in in this awful racial context in which they are forced to live and to see that other women have succeeded. So how do you look at the controversy, though, and the fact that here you are doing something that there are those who still would like to be haters for? Well, what you speak to is the power of storytelling. Um, if we don't, if the stories of women doing, doing what they do, all sorts of things in business, politics, culture, or whatever, if, if, if we don't know these stories, um, one, we can't be inspired by them. Two, we can't support them. Um, I think that the silver lining, the beauty of that, uh, um, hateration, I'll say about, uh, honeypot, and its founder focusing on black women is that it rallied people to support her. I have to say, I, I did not know about Honeypot before um, the controversy. Nor did and, I. Uh, <laughs> yes, and I'm a, a woman of a certain age and uh, don't use all of the products uh, that, that she produces the way I used to, which is one of the reasons why I missed it. But now I'm aware I will support her. If I can't use her products, I'll buy them for other people. I wanted in A Black Woman Did That to tell the story of scientist Shirley Jackson. She's the president of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, RPI. Yes. Yes, she is, but she's in my book because of her contributions to science and technology. Um, her work has, has brought us the cell phone, solar panels, um, uh, all, all sorts of uh, technology that's used um, by everyday people um, around the world. But once upon a time, she was a little girl in her backyard, fascinated by bees, so fascinated by bees that she would collect them and study them and study what they ate and how they rested and, and, um, you know, imagine, uh, imagine that. That's where genius begins in youth 
and with parents and community who support you. And one of the common themes of this book is how these women were supported by loving family and community um, before they became famous names and major contributors um, to to science and business and, and culture. Absolutely. I remember as a child hating the Sunday school performances where we'd have to stand up, you know, for the whole congregation and sing our song or or deliver our little speech or whatever. And yet I think about it and say, you know, that was the whole community of that congregation rallying to its children. And if I list off the number of children who were in that small Harlem Episcopalian Black West Indian Episcopalian Church, it's really quite a story, and it it really is rooted in that determination of community to armor us and to um, celebrate us, you know. Yeah, one of the reasons why um, I became a writer and a career publishing person is because whenever I wrote a story or recited a story like that Easter speech that you cite, which I didn't write, but I did recite. Um, I was given so much encouragement. You know, children want to please. So when you show that you um, gain pleasure from something that they do, that sticks with them. Mm-hmm. And that stuck with me through elementary school, through high school. The first award medal of sorts that I ever yes. got was for creative writing, you know, that sort of thing. So it's important. And, and again, I want young people, you know, this book is, um, of course, about black women, black girls. But this book is for everybody. And I've been very heartened by the positive and, and enthusiastic response I've gotten to it from boys in particular. And, uh, African American boys and African boys, by the way, in particular, mm-hmm. um, they love this book and respond to it. My family member, he, he told his male cousin, unprompted by me, said she's written a book and it's amazing. That's the best review I could get, you know? Well, you have written a book. A black woman did that, and it is amazing. More with our guest, Malika Dara, when we return after the break. Trying to make it real compared to what... We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest, Malika Adero, and she has written a wonderful book called A Black Woman Did That, 42 Boundary-Breaking, Bar-Raising, World-Changing Women. Malika, the selection of women, we talked about how you selected them, but how did you decide they're not necessarily in chronological order, they're not in alphabetical order, how did you decide what order how you would present them. I just kind of decided, you know, to not overthink the order. Um, it doesn't matter as well the order um, that a reader reads the book. You know, you can start it. And, and many people told me, they said, you know, it's funny to me, they say, you know, I hope you don't mind that I, I don't read it in order. You know, it's just a crack it open and I'm interested in this woman at this moment and somebody else mm-hmm. in the next. So I like that, you know, yeah. again, part of the point of having illustrations, having sidebars um, is to add interest and to make a book as interactive as possible. Jasmine Ward, Stacey Abrams. I'm just going to list a few of the names, names people may or may not be familiar with, but I think that's important for the range here. Misty Copeland, Alice Coltrane, Madam C.J. Walker, Patricia Bath, Lorraine Hansberry, Monet Davis, and then the list goes on. Um, Ava DuVernay, Zenobia Bailey, Alice Walker, Coretta Scott King, Whoopi Goldberg, um, Shonda Rhimes, Shirley Ann Jackson, you mentioned Simone Biles. Would you read to us, because she's a name that people may know, never have heard, and know absolutely nothing about, Patricia Bath. Would you read her entry? Okay. 
one thing I'll say, uh, Patricia Bath is a Harlemite, and I live in Harlem, so I was uh, particularly happy to have her in the book. Patricia Bath's interest in medicine was sparked when she learned about the renowned Dr. Albert Schweitzer, a European philosopher and physician who often appeared in the news because of work he did building and running a hospital in Gabon in Africa. The story of of his helping people with leprosy inspired her to take her first step toward a career in medicine. At 16, she applied for and won a scholarship from the National Science Foundation to attend a summer program at Yeshiva University. There, she studied the relationship between stress, nutrition, and cancer. After completing high school in only two and a half years, Patricia went on to study chemistry and physics at Hunter College. In 1968, she got her medical degree at Howard University College of Medicine, and she had a special interest in ophthalmology, which is the branch of medicine that deals with the structure of the eye and eye disorders and their treatment. While getting her medical degree, she worked at two hospitals in different areas of New York City. This allowed her to see differences in the medical needs and treatment options found in different communities. She noticed that half of the patients she saw in Harlem, mostly black and brown, coming into the ophthalmology department were visually impaired or blind. At Columbia University, which served a mostly white community, far fewer people suffered from visual impairment. She wondered why. There must have been a reason for the disparity in people's eye health. Patricia did what any good scientist would do. She dove into the research on the subject and learned that black people suffered blindness at twice the rate of white people. She concluded that the lack of access to eye care was the reason for the higher rate of blindness. Patricia was disturbed. She regarded eyesight as a basic human right. Her solution was to propose a new worldwide system known as community ophthalmology, in which eye care volunteers were trained to test the vision of people in underserved communities and screen them for cataracts, glaucoma, and other serious eye conditions. As a result of her efforts, thousands of people who would have otherwise gone undiagnosed and untreated, got the care that they needed. In 1974, the native New Yorker moved to Los Angeles, where she became the first African-American woman surgeon at the UCLA Medical Center, as well as the first woman to join the faculty of the UCLA Stein Eye Institute. Along with Alfred Cannon, and Erin Ife Kunigwe, she founded the American Institute for the Prevention of Blindness in 1976. In the middle of one cold, rainy night a few years later, she was working in the lab when she had a breakthrough using lasers to treat cataracts in the eye. Cataracts can cause blurry vision, and if left untreated, can cause blindness. Patricia was thrilled by her findings, but not all of her colleagues who were white men were encouraging. She recalls telling the director of the lab about her breakthrough only to be met with disbelief. He said it was impossible that she had devised a treatment by herself. Some of her colleagues resented her success. In 1986, Patricia pursued her interest in laser technology at prestigious institutes in Berlin, Paris, and the town of Loughborough in the United Kingdom, where she developed a laser instrument to remove cataracts. More than 25 million Americans are affected by cataracts. Her invention, called the laser FACO probe, was patented in 1988 and has since been used to restore the sight of countless people around the world. Some of the people she helped had been blind for decades. By 2001, having changed the state of medical care for African Americans and the state of eye care for people throughout the world, Patricia was inducted into the International Women in Medicine Hall of Fame. I love that one because, indeed, in this country, we tend to conflate 
lack of medical care with poverty. But sometimes the lack of medical care is official disinterest. And the conditions affecting people of color that affect white people also, but when a person of color walks in, they're simply not treated for it or their deficiency is just kind of summarily dismissed. And so when you go to the point where this, because she's an African-American woman, she comes up with her analysis of a problem. She decodes that. She realizes that maybe she can come up with a solution. She comes up with the solution, and the power structure around her, white males largely, simply dismiss her, which means that all those people, if she had not had the tenacity and the strength to carry forward, all those people that she has since helped through her discovery would have gone untreated. Exactly. Um, Medicine, every field, um, in, in, in a culture where Racism and sexism uh, are such strong forces. You're going to find that kind of uh, profiling and stereotyping everywhere, you know, mm-hmm. in, in publishing. Um, you're in a meeting. You know, you might have been hired because you were brilliant and well-educated and capable, but yet your ideas aren't always heard. Your opinions mm-hmm. aren't always heard or trusted the way the next person is, uh, either because of uh, race or gender. Um, I want young people, readers of the book, to realize that um, and to also see models uh, of tenacity, that you have to have confidence in yourself, that, that it pays off, it pays off to stick with it, uh, not to run away, um, uh, because or be end, pushed away. Exactly, exactly. Because everybody contributes and you win mm-hmm. by not stopping, no matter uh, what kind of obstacle um, people put before you. At the same time, your uh, difficulty, your discomfort, your suffering needs to be acknowledged. You know, many people go through these things, and this, despite the fact that it's widely known that it's a phenomenon and, and, and it's an aspect of our entire culture, they see it as a deficiency in themselves. Mm-hmm. We internalize someone else's problem. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, I asked you to read Patricia Bath's story, but at the same point, um, one of the most well-known people, you've written about her in the world, Oprah Winfrey, in contrast. What was the greatest surprise that you found about Oprah in researching her? You know, it's interesting. Oprah was one of the ones where I found the, the fewest surprises because she herself has talked about mm-hmm. her story so much. But what I was reminded of in her story um, is uh, the the loneliness and isolation she felt um, being bounced between two parents and several households in her family, mm-hmm. uh, um, living with her, her grandmother, you know, who was... You know, a loving woman. Every everyone has their flaws, but um, uh, but 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 feeling isolated. Yes. Mm-hmm. And what happens when you don't have you know a certain kind of stability and emotional stability in your life? And that's such an important uh, story thread, especially as we're going through what we are right now with family separations and people and children being dispersed, and also the extended. Um, service of, of, uh, military people where they are often separated from their children, uh, you know, for an entirely different reason. But I don't think children necessarily know the distinctions. These are distinctions without a difference when you're the child often who is craving that family member. And here you though have someone who's gone through this in, to the extreme who is still 
Oprah Winfrey. Exactly, exactly. I tell you, one of the surprises that I uh, had in, in, in the searching was Felicia um, Rashad and Debbie Allen, the, mm-hmm. the, the sisters, and how there was a period of time um, when their parents, their mom, moved them to Mexico. Yes. And, and that Mexico was where they first ate at an integrated uh, lunch counter or restaurant, you know, and that's where um, Debbie was able to um, uh, join a, a dance company, uh, uh, a classical dance company, you know, to pursue her dream, a dream that had been, she'd been barred from um, by racism in, in Houston, Texas, where they lived. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, it's, it's, we have our, um, ideas and our myths about what Mexico is and represents to us now and in the past, but it was a, a viable place for an African American family to live at a time when it, it, America was still racially oppressive. We are very proud of our first African-American president, President Barack Obama, but the first African-American president was in Mexico in 1832. Oh, my goodness. So, um, yes, when we come back, more with our guest, Malika Adera. She is raising issues and making us think more after the break. This week on the Janice Adams Show, a trying to make it real compared to what we're back here on the Janice Adams Show with our guest, Malika Adero. She is the author of a new book for young people. A black woman did that. Malika, we've been talking about the women that you've chosen, you know, their their inspiring lives, the things that they've come through, what it could mean in terms of inspiring a young person today, a young boy, young girl today. But I want to ask you a question. You've These are 42, I love saying this because it's like Peter Piper picked a pack of pickled peppers, but 42 boundary-breaking, bar-raising, world-changing women. In the research that you did, Can you tell us one, you don't have to name the person, but one woman that you chose not to include for very specific reasons and why? You know, it's it's not an easy question because there were many other women that um, uh, I love and admire who I did consider uh, initially but did not. Um, if the women that some women I did not include because my I wanted to put emphasis on those uh, who also did many things. You know, we we often think uh, um, uh, jack of all, all trades, master of none. That you know you must specialize. Um, that you, you know you you can do one thing, but you can't do do two two or three. Um, singing, for example, there, there's some, there are some careers that seem natural to black women, for example, and, and singing is one. But Alice Coltrane is there and Abby Lincoln are there because they weren't just a musician and a singer. They were composers. They were band leaders. In the case of Alice Coltrane, she was a spiritual leader. They broke ground in many ways. Debbie Allen is there not because she's just an amazing dancer and a choreographer, but she broke ground in film and television as a producer, as a director. You know what I'm saying? So my final list came down to to women uh, who, who again, were not only brilliant at the one thing that is obvious to us, but but in a multitude of, of ways. As business people, Serena uh, Williams is an extraordinary athlete. She's also a brilliant businesswoman. Yes, she is. 
Yeah. She is. In, in how, let's talk about how this applies then to your own career because I mentioned at the top of the show that you are coming to us today, yes, because you have a wonderful new book out, but you were previously a major editor and one of the few African Americans, period, who have been able to ascend the ranks of the publishing industry, either editorially or from the uh, business side. How did you start in publishing? Um, you know, as a young person wanting to be a writer, I also, um, over and over again, I'm reading the story of, of, of well-known black people, artists and writers or whatever, um, it, it, you would see uh, how behind the scenes they um, suffered business-wise and financially actually. Mm-hmm. So I decided that I wanted to be a creative. I wanted to make a, a, a living uh, doing something I was passionate about, but I also wanted to understand business. Um, I don't know why that was so firmly in my head, frankly, um, but I decided that somebody picked the writers who were published, and mm. I wanted to be one of those people. Now, from I'm talking from junior high school until I get to graduate school, um, I, I couldn't figure out how to get in publishing. But when I was in graduate school in a master's program in library and information studies, I found brochures um, promoting uh, book publishing institutes. There was a famous one, the Radcliffe Publishing Program, probably the most famous one. But there's one at the University of Colorado at Denver. And to my glee, um, Howard University launched a book publishing institute founded by Charles Harris in 1980. I applied to and was accepted to that inaugural class. So that was my key in. Um, um, that's where I, um, I was able to, to meet people who are already in the field as editors and publishers and, and, uh, um, writers. Uh, at the end of it, there was uh, a recruitment day. Uh, um, we, we met people from HR, and, and that's how I got my first corporate job uh, in publishing. Now, stepping back from that, what I had done in college before I knew about the publishing programs is that, because I kind of came up in the movement, I've been a political person all my life, I uh, began volunteering and then working um, full-time at the Institute of the Black World. Uh, a black think tank, an offshoot of the Martin Luther King Center for Social Change. Vincent Harding, um, Lerone Bennett, um, Bill Strickland um, founded and were the leadership of IBW. And there I learned the fundamentals of publishing because the organization published monographs and, and newsletters and, and that sort of thing. So I learned uh, typesetting and layout and, and how to run a press, you know. So I, I had some orientation in publishing already, and all of that experience helped me to advance once I got to New York City. I was living in the South at the time, um, got a job at last in corporate book publishing. At the time that you entered publishing, how were you received? <laughs> um, well, I got my first job at the New American Library in 1984 with an African-American senior editor who was already there. Her name was Carol Hall. Oh, um, Carol Hall, who then goes to John Wiley and becomes my acquisition. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Small world. Well, that, you know, the world is small. The black world is even smaller. Mm-hmm. And, um most most of the great opportunities I've ever had um, uh, were brought to me by uh, black people. You know, each one teach one, each yes. one pull each other up. So um, Charles Harris was already my mentor for having uh, um, been the, the head of and founder of Howard University Book Publishing Institute. He introduces me to Carol Hall, uh, who is intent on... Um, bringing as, as people of color up through her ranks and, and, and it goes on and on. And then mm-hmm. I hired other assistants. You know, it's generally not, I hate to say it, it's generally not the HR department no. who are in the forefront of 
uh, bringing diversity to companies. It's the black professionals who are already there and friends of ours, mm-hmm. people who also who might not be black, but value who we are and what we have to contribute. Which then also then speaks to what happens when we are not in those companies. And um, I am seeing among my friends and colleagues um, a push out, honestly, of, you know, even like those early first classes of the Harvard, black Harvard MBAs who you speak to and many of them are, it, sometimes it's age, but it's also very much a matter of race and we're seeing it come back. So what has this meant? What is this meaning in terms of publishing? Well, you know, the the thing is, is that the culture of publishing hasn't changed much in the last 25, 30 years. So we have about the same number of African-Americans making decisions about what gets published. Now, today, when you walk through the halls of publishing companies, you do see more black and brown faces in, in a variety of jobs. But in those positions where editorial lists are made, uh, where budgets are set, you don't have African Americans there. So people of authority. People of of a certain authority, yes. Yes, that that hasn't changed as much. You've had um, many, I've seen many young uh, uh, black and brown people um, get entry-level jobs, interns, associates, mentorship programs in in publishing, but many of them don't stay. Now, what many people will say is that um, because of the the relative low um, salaries in publishing, and that is a factor, but in my experience and knowing these people, it's more to do with an environment that isn't so friendly and welcoming of them. You know, I stuck with it because I was just intent. I'm passionate about publishing and media and storytelling, and I was going to do it whether I did it in a corporation or not. It just so happened that I have whatever the attributes, the tenacity, the flexibility, whatever, the diplomacy or lack thereof Mm -hmm. to function in, in, in that environment, you know, um, So, you know, the business isn't going to change until the will of leadership and publishing changes to really want to do something to make their ranks represent what the country looks like. And you can't do that if you're only recruiting at Ivy League schools and Seven Sisters schools, you know, and Mm -hmm. When you're a regionalist, when you're, uh, uh, when your class biases enter in, it's not going to happen. And similarly, you can't help a child become grounded, well-rounded in their worldview if we do not have books like A Black Woman Did That, presenting us stories of real lives. Malika, what's your next step? What's your next project? What are we looking for next? <laughs> you know, as you mentioned from the start, um, I, I, I have three hats at least. I, I continue to edit. I continue to work with individual writers and organizations, people um, publishing books from a creative through publication as they need. I also uh, represent writers. I, I'm an agent and thrilled that one of the novelists I represent, Banjiku Wangugi, has uh, a novel forthcoming from Seagull Publishing called Seasons in Hippo Land. I represent Peter Kamani, who is a critically acclaimed novelist, the author of Dance of the Jacaranda, um, and he has a new contribution to Nairobi Noir, which is a collection of fiction published by Akashic Books. So I continue to work with the writers mm-hmm. Um, I myself as a writer was working on uh, a nonfiction book on my family. 
And I will go back to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that I'm done with uh, a black woman did that. And, and, and what that book is, is really about an, an African American family from the last generation enslaved up to my own. Um, I happened to know my great great grandparents, meaning I knew about them all my life. My great great grandfather, Grundy Crump, was uh, a sergeant in the Union Army in the Civil War. Wow. So not every African American can so easily document and know the stories of a few generations mm-hmm. um, before themselves because I have that blessing. I want to share that story with other people. So that that's what I'm, I'm, I'm working on next as a writer, as an editor, every other week I'm, I'm working um, with a new writer, with a new project. One of the things that I love about what I do is that it's very unpredictable. It's amazing the human imagination and what writers are doing out here uh, uh, from all kinds of backgrounds. And I work with white writers, black writers. I work with all kinds of people uh, developing their stories. And, and that is my privilege and my pleasure. Well, it's been my privilege and pleasure to have you as a guest today, Malaika Adero. Thank you so much for joining us today on the show and for writing this incredible book. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. One correction. During the interview, I mentioned Mexico inaugurating the first African-American president in 1832. The date was actually 1829. Hashtag staying home for COVID-19. I'm Janice Adams. We go out today on the music of one of the fabulous women profiled in Malayika Adero's A Black Woman Did That, Abby Lincoln. Here she is with Stan Getz performing Bird Alone, words and music by Abby Lincoln herself. For more about today's show, visit my website, JanusAdams.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved. Bird alone, flying high, flying through a clouded sky. Thank you.
Thank you.